want to start this morning with a question. Why are you here? This is a question for both those of you here in the sanctuary with me and for those of you who are participating online. Why are you here? For those of you here in the sanctuary, why did you get up early on the weekend to come and sing some hymns, to hear some ancient words, and to listen to a sermon? Why did you put on some uncomfortable clothes and come and sit in a pew? For those of you online, the question is the same. Why are you here? Some of you are watching on your phones, some of you on your laptops or tablets, and some of you are projecting this service onto your TV screens, which even over a year into the pandemic still makes me feel like a televangelist and something I never wanted to be. Why are you here? It's a question I wonder about often. Why does the church exist? What's the point of our gathering together as a community? Now, before you start to worry, I'm not having a crisis of faith. I'm not having serious doubts about my calling as a pastor or anything like that. And my goal is not to instill that in you. But it's a question that's worth considering. Why are you here? Over a year into the pandemic, here is still sort of a strange term, isn't it? Because for, here means for some of us, the building. Here might mean somewhere at home, or for others of us, here might mean somewhere far away from Berkeley, Michigan altogether. Here is still a strange term. This pandemic, I think, has forced us to think about what is important in our lives. And so as we are emerging on the other side of all of that, we're still here. We're still gathering together as a community. And the fact that we're doing that indicates to me that this is an important gathering, that this is an important place. This is, it's important to us to be part of this community. So why are you here? And all of the strangeness of what here might mean right now. The disciples have their own place of here. Except for them, it was a much more conventional here, a place where they could all gather together in person without masks or any social distancing or anything like that. It was an upstairs room in a house that they were staying in somewhere in Jerusalem. And in that room were the 11 original disciples, because remember that Judas had taken his own life after he betrayed Jesus. But Judas's replacement, a man named Matthias, was also in that room. There were also women who were often overlooked in biblical stories. There were those first evangelists of the Easter message. There were a lot of people named Mary in that room. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. Mary, the mother of James, and then there's the outlier, Joanna. Those were the women who were present at the tomb, present there when they heard that good news that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus' mother Mary was also there in that room. In total, there were 120 people who were together, meaning that that room had to be big enough for all of them to be there. And they were there together in that upstairs room because they were in a time of major transition. That Jesus, after spending 40 days with them after his resurrection, returns back to God. Their teacher was now leaving them physically. And as he goes, the disciples watch. Luke, who not only wrote the gospel that bears his name, but also wrote the book of Acts that we read from this morning, imagines Jesus being lifted up into the clouds and returning back to heaven. The story that we know as the ascension or this mysterious event where Jesus returns back to God. I don't know all the physics of how that worked, but the point is, is that Jesus, who came from God, has now returned back to God. And so before he goes, he tells his followers to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the promised spirit. That even as he's leaving, 
the promise is that they will never be alone. That the same spirit that was with him his entire ministry, the same spirit that was working through him, enabling him to bring, out, bring about the kingdom of God, to preach good news, the same spirit that empowered him to love and to forgive, that spirit is now promised to all of his followers. So don't leave Jerusalem, he says. Wait on the promise. And as Jesus is lifted back into the presence of God, these 120 followers stare up into heaven. They watch, their mouths ajar, wondering what to do now that Jesus is gone. But as they stare into heaven, mesmerized and entranced with Jesus' departure, two men appear, two mysterious visitors, the same sort of visitors that appeared at the tomb. And they say, hey everybody, stop staring into heaven. The Jesus that came to you now, it will return again. And so they're there in that upstairs room in Jerusalem, praying, singing, and waiting for the arrival of the Spirit, waiting on that promise that Jesus spoke to them. In my family, promises were one of the most important things. If you made a promise, you had to follow through. Integrity mattered. Being a person of your word mattered. Promises in my family were more binding than international treaties. You could not break a promise without serious repercussions or without some serious extenuating circumstances. Even then, promises still had to be rain-checked and they were expected to be fulfilled at a later time. And so sometimes my siblings and I would use that to our advantage. We would make the other one promise to do something and then they had to do it. And that was especially useful as the oldest child when my younger siblings were bothering me and I wanted them to do something. So my brother, who's the youngest, I could pin him down and he would have to promise to stop doing the thing that he was doing that bothered me in order for me to let him up. It's probably not so much a promise as it is extortion, but (laughs) I was a kid and I didn't know any better. But what promises did more importantly than forcing our siblings into compliance with each other was it created this sense of trust. That when mom and dad, the most important people in our lives growing up, made a promise to us, We trusted that they would fulfill that promise. The most important words, I promise. So as this burgeoning community is gathered together in one place, as they are waiting on the expectant promise of Jesus, they wait for that Holy Spirit. They are there in that place waiting expectantly for the fulfillment of those words, I promise. That upstairs room becomes a place of trust. For 10 days, they wait with great expectation and anticipation for that gift and the promise of Jesus. They open themselves up to God, ready and waiting for God to act. In the words of preaching professor Deborah Mumford, the promise of the Holy Spirit compelled 120 people to gather in anticipation of it. They rearranged their schedules and synchronized their calendars to make themselves available to God. And then... It happens. God acts. The promise is fulfilled. God is trustworthy to what God has promised. As they are gathered together in one place, the Holy Spirit makes a dramatic entrance. The wind starts howling through the Jerusalem streets, wind that is stronger than any Midwest thunderstorm that rattles the windows of our houses. The wind fills the room where these 120 Jesus followers are sitting It looks like tongues of fire on top of their heads, and they start speaking in languages they've never learned. The Holy Spirit makes such a scene, such a dramatic entrance, 
that the people on the streets, faithful Jews, not only from the Roman Empire, but from beyond its borders, come to see what's going on. They hear these Galileans, these backwater folks, speaking in their native languages. Now let's not underestimate the power of this moment. It's not just that these disciples are speaking a different language. It's not just that they are using foreign words that they supposedly never learned or composing sentences in a previously unknown language. But it is, as Debbie Thomas in her commentary on this passage says, that languages carry the full weight of their respective cultures, histories, psychologies, and spiritualities. To speak one language as opposed to another is to orient oneself differently in the world, to see differently, to hear differently, to process and punctuate reality differently, to speak across barriers of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, culture, or politics is to challenge stereotype and to risk ridicule. To attempt one language as opposed to another is to make oneself a learner, a servant, and a supplicant. It is a brave and disorienting act. These disciples are able to communicate in a way that what they're saying is communicating with those people who are there to listen. They are able to communicate in such a way that those who have come to check out what all that wind is about become not only hearers, but listeners. And as our mothers have told us, there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? You heard me, but you did not listen, we've heard our mothers say. These disciples are able to communicate that message of Jesus, that way of Jesus, in a way that it connects across the language, the culture, the race, the religion, the gender, all of those things. At least it's true for many of them. Still others sneer and say they're just drunk. And then Peter says, we're not drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And every year when we read that, we snicker a little bit. But that's the risk that you run when you allow the Spirit to work through you, is that some will not listen but others will. Each one of them, the text says, is able to communicate this most important message. Each one of them, on each one of them, the Spirit descends like a tongue of fire. On Mary Magdalene, on Peter, on James, on John, on Joanna, on each one of them. The gift of the Spirit, the fulfilled promise of the Spirit, is a universal gift, but it is also a personal one. One that is given to each one of them individually. Regardless of the person, regardless of their age or gender, regardless of their nationality or sexual orientation, no matter if they are citizens or immigrants, the Spirit is given to each, and the tongue of fire rests on each one of them so they can communicate this message of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, across the boundaries that language creates. It is given to each one of them. So they can communicate in all of the complexities of communication, that message of love, justice, mercy, and compassion begun in Jesus and now residing in the hearts of every person in this community. That same spirit that resided in Jesus, the same spirit who claimed Jesus as beloved in his baptism, the same spirit that anointed Jesus to bring good news to the poor, to preach recovery of sight to the blind and freedom for those who are oppressed, the same spirit that animated Jesus to reach out with hands of compassion, that spirit now rests and lives through each and every one of them. The final promise of Jesus before he returns back to God has now been fulfilled and it fulfills or it fills all of his followers. The promised spirit, Peter says in his inaugural sermon, quoting the prophet Joel, is being poured out on all people. 
the Spirit is being given to our sons and our daughters, our younger generation, with the ability to prophesy. And prophesy is not about predicting the future, but about speaking about the things of God. The Spirit of God is being poured out on our sons and our daughters to show us who God wants us to be. To remind us about what is most important about being a gathered community. The young are casting visions, creative visions, daring visions, spirit-filled and spirit-inspired visions. The Spirit of God is being poured out on our servants, those in lower social classes, those who are oppressed and maligned, and they are telling us to pay attention. They have a message from God to speak to us. The Spirit of God is being poured out on our elders, that older generation, so that they can dream again. They too are given a vision for the future. Their age does not exclude them from this spirit-filled reality. It is for them too. And where they have stopped dreaming, the Spirit comes and awakens them. On each one of them, the Spirit of God is being poured out. The promised Spirit, without a, a building or a budget, without a five-year plan or clerical robes or pews or an organ or hymnals or a paid staff. The Spirit of God is being poured out. And Jesus' ministry, the message of the kingdom of God, now lives within his followers. So why are we here? Why are we here in the sanctuary? Why have we continued to offer live stream services? That we are here because the promised spirit is still the promised spirit. That we are here because the promise is always ready to arrive once again, to blow through this place, to blow through here and all of the particularity of what here might mean right now whether it's our kitchens or our living rooms or here in our sanctuary. The Spirit of God, the promise of Jesus, is ready to be poured out on all of us. That holy fire of God, the presence of God, is given to us, men and women, young and old, rich and poor. And it's enabling us to dream new dreams and to cast new visions. The Spirit of God is being given to us to communicate that most important message to all the world. The Spirit of God is ready to descend once again like fire and become enfleshed in each one of us. That within us, the Holy Spirit is alive and active. The Holy Spirit is ready to blow through here, whatever here means right now. And we realize our highest calling and obligation is to communicate that message of Jesus. And communicating that message of Jesus doesn't always mean we have to use our words, but also means the things that we do. The Holy Spirit arrives because the world is still hurting that there are people without jobs and health insurance, and worse yet, that there are people without hope. And we are here so that the Holy Spirit might empower us to advocate for those whose voices are so often ignored or not heard in the halls of power. That we are here because the Holy Spirit is filling us with compassion and love to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to hold on to hope for those who right now are hopeless. The Holy Spirit, the great comforter of our lives, blows into us yet again and to offer us grace and love. For those places where we ourselves are hurting, for those places where we are not our best selves, the Holy Spirit arrives to offer us grace, to make us whole. For where we are longing for the promises of God to be fulfilled in our own lives, the Holy Spirit's arrival reminds us that God is always faithful to what God has promised. The promised spirit fills us with a passionate fire for justice. We are here so we might be filled with that fire for justice and righteousness, so that fire might rest and live within each one of us. We are here because the spirit inspires and the spirit animates. 
The spirit, that fire of God, kindles a fire within us to create a world of justice and equity, a world that looks like the kingdom of God. We are here, whatever here means right now, because the promise is being fulfilled for us, in us, and through us. The promised spirit is here, ready to fill us with an overflowing presence. The promised spirit is still the promised spirit ready to pour into our lives. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, dwell among us. Thanks be to God. Amen.